You're listening to Thinking Biblically. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman, and each week for the past several weeks, I've been having uh, various people on to talk about how all of Scripture applies to all of life. Uh, before I introduce this week's guest, don't forget to uh, click the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube, as well as the notification bell, so that you will be notified whenever a new video is posted. And if you're listening to uh, an audio edition on your favorite podcast provider, uh, be sure to subscribe there as well. Also, don't forget to leave your comments, and I'll be giving you uh, my email address at the at the end, um, so that you can contact me with your comments and questions. And so today, it is my pleasure to have Jojo Ruba. Uh, Jojo is with Faith Beyond Belief, and we talked just before, and I told him uh, I very often have a piece of paper and I read a, a prescripted bio, but I thought. The best thing would be for Jojo to fully introduce himself because we're going to be talking about his own personal story. And uh, as we go along, there's going to be some interesting places to perhaps park on and we'll, we'll discuss some of those. So thank you, Jojo, for joining me today. Well, thanks for the invite, Alan. Glad to be here. Yeah. So first, let's start. What What is Faith Beyond Belief and what's your role? Sure. Faith Beyond Belief is a Christian worldview and apologetics ministry based here in Calgary, Alberta. So we're Canadian. And part of our job, or the heart of our job, in fact, is to equip Christians to be effective ambassadors for Christ in everyday conversations. So we realize that we can be very intellectual about apologetics, which is uh, the defense of the Christian worldview. Uh, but we also saw that there was a real need for everyday people in everyday conversations to explain and translate what we believe as Christians to a hurting world. And that's what we really want to focus on conversation training. So we started this ministry about 12 years ago here in Alberta. And and you yourself, what what's your role? I, like, I know some of the answers to some of this, but why don't you tell everybody? <laughs> sure. So I'm the one of the founders. The uh, uh, I think the title we have is Chief Ambassador. I think we made that title up because uh, we actually have a new uh, executive team that's been helping that's doing administration. And and frankly, a really important job because I'm actually on furlough, Alan. I'm on uh, furlough, I realize, means that I still work for FBB, but for the time being, I'm getting paid by and working for a, a group that we started as well called Free to Care. And Free to Care is at freetocare.ca is an organization that uh, involves a lot of Christians, but not necessarily is Christian, uh, defending uh, free speech and defending the right to get of LGBTQ people to get counseling against what people are considering or calling conversion therapy bans across Canada. So I've been working on that for about a year now, uh, officially for about a year, and it's been a very tough slog. We'll talk more about that, I guess, in terms of why that's such a critical discussion right now. Uh, but in, in terms of the work we're doing, we have been able to reach out and speak to municipal governments all across Western Canada, the federal government as well. And especially during this election season, these, this issue is going to be a big one uh, for Canadians to discuss. So uh, I think particularly from my, my apologetics background, Alan, having uh, the, the ability to explain or translate things well has been such a critical skill in this debate. And I'm hoping by doing and, and working on this issue, I can model how apologetics and worldview 
new training can actually be useful in every endeavor that we have as Christians. In fact, we think it's foundational. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, you can't explain that to other people and you won't have a foundation for your worldview. So this conversion therapy ban bill, uh, which what's its status right now here in Canada, the, the federal well, bill? Well, it's passed the House of Commons, uh, and it needs to be passed in the Senate before it becomes federal criminal law. It's actually a criminal bill. Uh, however, the uh, the Senate has not taken it up yet, and every indication is that there's going to be a federal election in the next couple of weeks, uh, at the earliest or even at the latest. Uh, so that means all of the bills that have been incomplete in the parliament system, parliamentary system will not pass, uh, which means that they will have to reintroduce the bill again after the election to the House and then the Senate. Do you have any um, idea worldwide how many countries, jurisdictions have been adopting conversion mm-hmm. therapy bans or something well, there's like that? There's, there's actually 180 that we found. Uh, in terms of research, key, uh, new cities and municipal governments and federal governments have been adding regularly. So I think New Zealand, the UK, uh, the, I'm talking to someone from Wales, I think, in the next couple of days. Uh, but what, one thing that's really frustrating that Canadians don't seem to realize is there is no jurisdiction outside of Canada that does that uses the definition of conversion therapy that the federal government and 10 municipal governments in, in and the province of Quebec, I'm sorry, I should forget, I should forget them, actually use. Uh, and, and this is sort of where the rubber hits the road and why I've taken such an active role on it. One of the reasons why I've taken such an active role on it, because the conversion therapy ban uh, definition or the conversion therapy definition used by medical associations like the Canadian Psychological Association, the American Psychological Association, in fact, every medical association in North America that I've looked at, and all these other governments, including federal governments like Australia and Germany, uh, or actually Germany, Australia state governments, uh, all of them you, uh, define conversion therapy as sexual orientation change from gay to straight or from uh, a, a transgender to cisgender. Canada's conversion therapy ban actually bans both conversion therapy for trying to change orientation from gay to straight. Uh, there's no sanction, by the way, for someone trying to convert someone from straight to gay, by the way. That's perfectly fine. Uh, but it also defines it this way. So conversion therapy is a practice, treatment, or service that's designed to con- change someone's sexual orientation from gay to straight or to reduce non-heterosexual or non-cisgender behavior attractions or behavior. So simply discouraging sexual behavior is fine if it's heterosexual behavior. But if your counseling discourages non-heterosexual behavior, that will be considered conversion therapy, even if the client, even if the patient doesn't want to change their orientation. And that that counselor can go to jail for five years for doing that. So a pastor, a rabbi, an imam who t- who of who talks to someone of their own congregation of their own free will who wants to reduce say a gay porn addiction would not be allowed to get that kind of counseling support even as a consenting adult yeah so i do want to talk about this more and uh you know one of the reasons why i invited you on is 
you know, we, we've met years ago and mm-hmm. with some of your other endeavors and, and you know some of my adult children pretty well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but, I, I met them when I was in Ottawa. It was great to, to get to know them and train some of them even. Yeah, so uh, I saw you in, I don't know how many times you appeared before the Federal Parliamentary Committee on this issue, and I thought you did such an astounding job. Thank and you. Uh, so it, I'm so happy to have you on to talk about these things, but why don't we go a little bit more back to the beginning, mm-hmm. because there are some personal elements to your own story that I, I think people will find very helpful uh, in understanding where you're coming from as you as you address this very important issue. So could we do that? Can we go back to the beginning sure. and, and can you, where are you from and, and your faith <laughs> journey and, and how did you get into apologetics? And I don't know how much we can cover in this short time, but yeah. let's start. Well, and, and and let me clarify, man. I'm passionate about this conversion therapy, Van Ellen, because this directly affects the work of the church, the work of Christian counselors, the work of pastors, and the work of people of any kind of religious faith, and frankly, anyone who believes in free speech. You don't have to be religious to take our stands. Uh, but uh, this actually was something and is something that affects me. So I had to deal with th- this kind of uh, need for support as well. Um, well, the- I'm going I'm to just stop you just for a second because there's something that comes up when I've been talking to to, to people on this on this podcast, mm-hmm. and there's a tendency, um, and I, I hope you're going to agree with me here, or else we might have a problem. But uh, we'll see how this goes. Isn't this fun? So um, there is a tendency when we People come on to thinking biblically, and I totally get it. We're talking to Christians and the mm-hmm. church and this sort of thing. But when we when we talk about something like the conversion therapy ban, this is an issue for people, mm-hmm. right? And and when and our concern about something like this, this social issue, is we're not trying to figure out how best to practice our religion and how we could protect ourselves within the confines of our religious organizations. That's that's important too. But we are actually concerned for our neighbors, for our, our relatives. And I know religious people get a bad rap that we're you know, trying to push our view uh, on, on other people. It's not about pushing our view on other people. It's about being concerned about the, the welfare of our fellow human beings. Absolutely. Well, well, I would disagree on that point because I, I would point out every law forces someone's point of view on someone else. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, right. you know, I understand yeah. that. It's all, yeah. like we believe in enforcement of, of certain things in the society, and we believe that's how to run a good society. But my, my main issue is that the motive for taking up the banner of, of an issue isn't simply to uh, bolster our own position and to protect our communities and this sort of thing. We're actually concerned about our, our fellow human beings. Yeah, and, and in fact, it should be that way. Sometimes, it, and unfortunately, we are inward-looking, I think that's part of the the problem of where society has has gone because the church has been so inward looking. Uh, but when I was studying uh, politics in Ottawa at Carleton, one of the key phrases we learned even in the first year was the need for a common good. We have to fight for a common good. And Christians throughout Canada's history, as well as the history of democratic countries around the world, have always fought for for a common theme a common set of values that would benefit everyone. There's a reason why atheism flourishes in 
uh, countries that started at least Christian and not in countries that are Muslim or countries of other religious backgrounds. Because democratic freedoms, the idea that we as Christians, particularly we as evangelicals, cannot force someone into heaven through our political or legal systems. We have to be convincing. We have to try to appeal to them. And as, as uh, Peter uh, and Paul and, and the disciples did, reason with people, give them reasons why the gospel is true. So the, the best way for us to do that is to fight for a system where reasonable arguments and ideas can be debated openly. So but that's, that, not, that's, but that's not just so that we feel better about our beliefs. It's right. actually because... We believe that we have something to share that's going to benefit people. It's like if we really, um, uh, if we had a cure for a particular disease that maybe should remain nameless for the sake of this podcast, and I, like, it would be uh, hatred for me to keep that to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was just reading to one of our our uh, granddaughters the other day the story of Louis Braille, um, and I didn't know his story, and I didn't know um, how much opposition he had to promote reading by his new system of dots, as he called them, or as his book called them, um, to, to be able to empower blind people to, to read and the amount of opposition that he received. But he wasn't trying to, like he didn't know it was going to be called Braille. And he wasn't trying to push his agenda. He actually had something to share with the world and then faced opposition. And thank God that in, in the end, um, his his system be, has become what it what it's become, and so and we do and I think we do need to be careful. I think sometimes um, whoever we are, we can take our, our our religious passion and turn it into something that is more for us than for others, right. and that's worthy of correction. Yeah. But you know, one of the favorite facts that I like pointing out is when God brought the nation of Israel to the promised land. Uh, I point out especially to young people, why did God bring Israel? to a place in the middle of all its enemies. All her enemies are around her. Why Why put them there if that's the promised land? Why not give them an island where they're isolated and they can flourish by themselves? As a Jewish and, person, that is a great question to be asking, <laughs> Jojo. So, so well, tell us why. Like tell us question. why. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the whole point is, what, especially when we read through the Old Testament prophets, right? they had a responsibility to speak to the rest of the culture about their God and how their God saves and how their God is true and real, right? And that mandate hasn't changed for God's people today, right? So uh, our job is not to force Christianity down the throats of people who disagree with us, but to create a society where people can freely look at and study and explain or explain and also listen to the claims of Christ. But also that means they have a right to listen to all the other claims of all the other religions and the people with no religion, Right, so that's why democracy flourishes in countries that started out from a Christian or a biblical worldview. And, and I think, uh, Alan, particularly on this issue of sexuality, one of the things the church has deeply forgotten is that we still have good news. That's good news for all Canadians, whatever their sexual orientation or religion or background. There's a group that we've been dealing with called No Conversion Canada that's been pushing for these conversion therapy bans across Canada. But look at their name, No Conversion Canada. And and that speaks volumes to me about the real agenda, about the kind of mindset that they have. And they've said this in podcasts that they're fighting to make sure everyone has to agree with them on sexuality. That's the implication 
of the things that they've been pushing. And and it's it's frustrating. They've actually posted on our Facebook page that once the this conversion therapy ban is shut is passed, they will shut down organizations like ours, like Faith Beyond Belief, which doesn't even do conversion therapy or counseling of any kind, but they would shut us down simply because we uphold the biblical view of sexuality. Okay, so we've we continued down this trail. Let's get back to you. And uh, I, I know your time is limited, but give it your best shot. Let, give let us hear about your own background and, and how sure. this issue is personal for you. For sure, and and uh, it, I think it's it's critical to understand that what when I'm I'm sharing this, part of it is uh, these are these are ideas and and thoughts that have been formulated after the fact. So things are a lot more clearer now, <laughs> looking backwards, than when I was working and living through this, uh, at, at uh, living living my life that time. Uh, so I grew up in a, in a Christian home. My dad actually became a Christian when he was five years old because of a Southern Baptist missionary who came to the Philippines and evangelized. And he came to a, a daily vacation Bible school uh, at five. He grew up, he sort of wandered around for a bit, but came back to Christ. Um, uh, when they when my, my mom and myself and my brother and he moved to Canada. And as part of our, our life here, uh, they were expecting to do all kinds of uh, professional work. Both my prof- my parents were professors in the Philippines, and, and so they were expecting to have a good life for my brother and I. And, and when when we were going to the small Filipino church, and the church planter moved on to a different congregation, different province, uh, my dad was the senior deacon at the time, and he was uh, the person chosen by the the deacons board to become the pastor. And, and so I grew up as a pastor's kid. I remember around 13 or 14 was this this awkward time where I knew. An and I dedicated my life to Christ, and I realized this is all stuff that's part of who I am. Uh, but also, as, as a 13 or 14-year-old, I was really struggling. I was a chubby brown kid in a, a school that was mostly white. It was actually in Winnipeg, uh, about a third of my classmates were Jewish kids. And they were really smart because they got all the Jewish holidays off and the Christian holidays off. So it, it was great. I just uh, My only regret was I started school around grade 7, and by that time, all my friends who hadn't become my friends yet all had their bar mitzvah, so I never actually got a chance to celebrate any bar mitzvah with them. Uh, but one of the things that happened, though, was I remember even um, even going back to elementary school, just feeling so um, so different, not only because of my culture and my weight and all these other things, but I felt like there was one group uh, back home, and my church was Filipino, my family's Filipino, where that was one set of, of my life and then life in the public school. And and that was – I was able to balance that. But one thing that to began uh, in terms of my perspective, again, looking backwards now, was how different I felt from people who were not part of my Christian Filipino background and who were not that part of my culture. And this is critical because when we talk about same-sex or sexual attract, same-sex sexual attractions, these things develop because of that sense of difference, and that that sense of I don't belong to this group. And in this case, it was a group of what what I considered the the ideal masculine uh, view. And and I knew this was in the background. It wasn't something that I talked about openly. Obviously, as a 13 or 14 year old, I couldn't even understand it. But it was something that I began to to really struggle with when I went to university. 
and I, I discovered pornography. I discovered uh, all kinds of uh, ways that sexuality was being expressed. And, you know, I remember my first bus ride in Ottawa uh, coming from Winnipeg and, and thinking, wow, this is the big city. It's very progressive and all kinds of, of things there. And it was, it was one of my favorite cities now, but just being a first year student, a frosh uh, in Ottawa. Uh, I remember I was on uh, Ottawa bus. And it was, I think, a transgender person walked on the bus. And they weren't very common back then. But I thought, man, this is a strange city. And this is not the kind of place I want to know if I want to live here, right? And, and that whole concept of sexual gender identity was still being um, – uh, it was sort of in its its infancy, especially the transgender part of it. So this was the early 90s when I moved – or late 90s, I'm sorry, when I moved to to Ottawa. Well, one of the, the things that happened, though, was I began I, – I, I not only began to experience these same-sex attractions, but I realized that I, I was really being attracted to someone in my Bible study group uh, at university, and it was a, a, a men's Bible study group. So I figured this is not normal. I need to – get counseling and support because I, I, I don't want to have to struggle with this. I want to understand what's going on. So I asked my friend who was the head of InterVarsity there for a phone number for a local Christian counselor. And she gave me that, uh, that phone number. They went to see the counselor. And by the way, just to, to make sure I understand, the person giving the phone number to me, my friend, my Christian friend, uh, she would be now guilty of promoting conversion therapy under the conversion therapy ban, and she would go to jail for three years just for giving me a phone number. Uh, I could, uh, and to clarify what I said earlier, the conversion the the federal ban would still allow me to get free counseling. So if a pastor or rabbi offered counseling for free, but because the advertising would not be allowed. I would not be allowed to, I couldn't find any counselor at that point. So it's basically a de facto man anyway. And the reason why that I point that out is because no one knew at that time that I was seeing this counselor, except for my friend. She was the first person I shared with uh, that I had these uh, struggles and these attractions, and I was trying to deal with them from a Christian perspective. I didn't want to act on them. I wanted to modify that uh, behavior. And and uh, what was interesting is I remember sitting down with the, the, the Christian counselor and realizing this just old elderly gentleman, very nice guy, but he had no clue what he was doing. <laughs> I just thought, man, this is going to be tough. And I accepted that I may not so, have. Sir, was that the counselor? The Christian counselor, yeah. He, he didn't was, know he, what to do. He didn't know what to do. Now, if we could no. just for a moment. So even this part of your story, mm-hmm. many would say, like, why would you be trying to change yourself anyway because Mm -hmm. if you discovered a certain thing about yourself Mm -hmm. why and and that's one of the things so some some would say it's societal pressure and old-fashioned tradition that would even give you a negative inkling about what you were dealing with and and you were calling it a struggle and others would say what struggle like it's it's all imposed by the society and if we could just be free of of those restraints then we could really be who we are so what what do you say to that well, that's a brilliant question, Alan. I'm, I'm glad you raised that, that up. I, I think the idea of sexual attraction as a, your fundamental or foundational identity, we have to recognize that is a, actually a modern construct. And this is LGBT historians and their allies who are pointing this out. So in a book written by a, a woman named Hannah Blank, she's an LGBT ally, and, and others as well, including LP members of that same community, she wrote a book called the, uh, uh, 
uh, the short history of heterosexuality. And in that book, she argues that even the terms heterosexual and homosexual were coined to describe two sexual orientations or attractions to make them equal in identity and value in the 1860s in Germany. So before then, the word heterosexual is actually more commonly used or exclusively used to describe people who are promiscuous with the opposite sex. So they were wanting to have a lot of sex with a lot of people of the opposite sex. And it was only at this time in the, in the 1860s, late 1800s, where the term heterosexual began to be used to uh, define straight people or people who only wanted to have sex with the opposite sex. And, and they coined the word homosexual as an equal but distinct sexual orientation and identity. And so the concept of sexual identity uh, was not something that was commonplace in any culture anywhere else around the world. Uh, sexual practices, gender practices, obviously have all kinds of cultural uh, backgrounds uh, throughout history. But to clearly identify yourself that way was a very rare thing to do, if, if, if in terms of especially of the Western cultures. So when these ideas came about and became more popular – uh, people began reacting to that concept that you could be defined based on your sexual attractions, your sexual feelings. And, and, and so there's, there's a great um, website, for example, called The Art of Manliness, and it actually has found these pictures from the 1800s and the early 1900s showing men interacting with each other with their best friends. And of course, at this time, photos are very expensive to take, so you would have to pose either for a long time or you'd pay a lot of money, so you'd want to make sure those, those images capture something you value. And you see these pictures of these men with their arms around each other, with the sitting on each other's lap, lying down, lying in bed together, uh, and, and holding hands, that, that kind of stuff, until around the 1860s and, and past that, around the early 1900s, uh, because when the concept of homosexuality as an identity became popularized, culturally, especially in the West, these images stopped uh, existing at all. Men stopped looking at each other with, with kind of an intimate, uh, non-sexual look. People, men stopped holding hands, except from certain cultures that still happens in Africa and, and India. Uh, but be, they, they, the public expression of affection disappeared almost, um, you know, within a couple of decades after this concept of heterosexuality and homosexuality became well known. And the church also reacted to that, I think, in a negative way, because then they embraced this label of homosexuality, put it on people who are men who are effeminate or women who are masculine looking, and they made laws banning uh, homosexuality and em emphasized that by going after mannerisms and how, what people uh, looked like, not just how what people did. So the persecution that we've been facing now is a backlash to that persecution in the past of LGBTQ people. So the, the, the whole concept that homosexuality or gender identity can be the, the number one thing that defines you is a modern construct. So when people argue, well, why don't you just act on your feelings? Well, well here's the point. I may not choose my attractions, but I can definitely choose my behavior. And choosing my behavior is my choice. So even a, as a, a Christian, uh, I'm I know sexual practices should be uh, should only exist from a Christian worldview between a mar the mar within the marriage of a husband and a wife, and and all other sexual practices are not 
uh, allowed, not not uh, uh, acceptable. And, and and here's the other thing, Ellen, that I realized too, struggling through this and to respond to that question, I had to learn that whatever God commands is always good for us. So when I follow God's commands, and I've seen that in my own life, God will bless that obedience. And God will bless that that ability uh, and, and give us the ability to to practice self-control. Does that mean it's easy? My only point is easier than disobeying God's command. So to respond to those people who say you must act on your sexual attractions, you must act on these sexual identities, you must embrace, in fact, this whole identity, is actually taking away the choice of Canadians to identify as they wish. Right. So can we go back to your counseling? And at first you said this this gentleman really didn't know what to do with you. Yeah, yeah. Again, part of part of the struggle with conversion therapy now is the church made a, quite a few mistakes trying to manage or deal with sexual attractions, or, or, or uh, non-heterosexual uh, feelings and non-gender uh, conforming um, identities. And, and so, part of the the response that we gave focused on immediate change or addressing those attractions and trying to make someone heterosexual. But if you reject those labels in the first place and understand that we can all practice all kinds of sexual uh, brokenness in all kinds of ways, and that's not uh, exclusive to one set of people, uh, then you begin to realize that not only do you not have to identify yourself with those sexual identities, but that we can offer something better. Um, I I think it goes back to the development part of it, Alan, if I could answer that question, because I think this will help. When I was talking to my counselor, he was trying to get me to to find women attractive. But uh, it wasn't that I couldn't do that. The problem uh, was that I was going back to my time as as a child, as a young, young person, where I was the outsider looking into the world of masculinity and 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 the way i've explained it to people is if you imagine two swimming pools one is a swimming pool of uh, the feminine and one is the swimming pool for the masculine if you're transgender for some reason you feel you belong in the opposite pool if you're struggling with same-sex sexual attraction you feel you belong in neither pool because you know you're not female for example but you don't feel like you belong in what is termed the masculine world. And so that sense of, of lack of belongingness actually leads to the concept that uh, that masculine is different from you. See, one of the things that I realized I was struggling with, and I was always asking this, was when I was struggling with same-sex attraction, I was never attracted to anyone else of this my same race or anyone whose skin was darker than mine. I was only attracted to white people, white men. And, and I thought, that's strange. Am I, am I racist? Like, is that the reason why I'm like this? Uh, and, and I tried to figure that out. And, and part of it was I realized, obviously, again, looking back, struggling through this, is that what I perceived as masculinity was always the, the good-looking, handsome uh, actors or movie stars. And they were always white. And I thought, that is what masculinity looks like. And, and so when someone struggles with same-sex attraction, one of the things you need to realize is in their minds, it's actually not same-sex attraction. They perceive what they're attracted to as different from them. That's what makes it sexually attractive in the first place. 
And so when when you're talking to someone who's never experienced same-sex attraction, they don't understand that because they don't see that difference. And and they don't see that that kind of underlying uh, assumption that you've somehow made, and that could be caused by all kinds of things. But I've I've talked to same-sex attracted friends, both male and female, and they agree with this analysis that for something somewhere along the way, there was a disconnect between them and what they perceive as their gender or their sexual, um, their masculine or feminine identity, and and the, what they perceive as masculine, and and that distinction is what leads to same-sex attraction because it isn't same-sex attraction in their brains. Biologically, uh, animals, mammals particularly, uh, are designed to attract the other gender. Right. Uh, one of my favorite stories, again, going back to Israel, there's a, a kind of goat species that actually a male urinates on itself to attract the female. The hormones the, ma- the male uh, 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 produces through its urine uh, uh, is meant to attract females. Now, I always ask the kids I speak to, which one is gross? Like, which one's more gross? The man who pees on it, the male who pees on itself, or the females that are attracted to that? <laughs> right? So, but specifically, that attraction is built in in the design of the male and the female, the, the nasal cavities of the female, the urine the male produces, the hormones the male produces. So biologically, we see that in nature that uh, animals are designed to attract the opposite. And, and many of these animals are what's called se- uh, sexual or gender dimorphic which means they're specifically different to attract the other. That's why certain kinds of ducks are, di- are different shades so that the male is more uh, uh, colorful than the female. That's why peacocks have huge tails, but peahens don't. Why? Because that's meant to attract the opposite. And, and yes, there are times when animals practice same-sex sexual practices, but I would hardly call that a sexual orientation. Those are just biological functions that exist because these animals are, need to procreate and they have to have some sort of sexual activity. Uh, for example, the gay penguins that I always, everyone always talks about. Well, penguins are social animals. And if in a zoo, and this has happened in this Toronto Zoo, uh, there's an odd number of animals and there's uh, not enough females for every male, well, the two males are going to come together because they like to cuddle. <laughs> it's not because they're gay. right? That, that's a human concept. So, so in, in terms of understanding this, I think the church, Alan, has to come back to going to, to providing a better way of communicating about intimacy. One of the lines that we, we like to point out is that when, when our culture talks about how love is love, they actually forget that love actually has many different facets and many different meanings. Right? There's a difference between saying, I love pizza, and I love math, and I love grandma. Right? Hopefully, you'd understand that there's differences. And in the same way, Scripture actually uses four, at least, ways uh, that we can love people. There's storge love, which is love of family, love of the familiar, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves. There is uh, eros love, of course, erotic love, the love, the passion love between a man and a woman, where they see each other as different, but they want to know more, and then that difference intrigues them. And they are different. That's the whole point of biology. Uh, There's philia love, which is friendship love, obviously the love of David and Jonathan, where they loved each other unconditionally as friends. But, But the sexual part wasn't there because, as Lewis says, friendship love is about seeing the sameness in someone else and wanting to be with that person, whereas Eros love is seeing the difference in someone else 
and wanting to be with that person. That's why they're distinct. And then, of what, course, agape love. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time. What happened after it didn't go well with that counselor? Well, part of it was I realized I, my counseling may not change my sexual attractions, but it will help me manage my behaviors. And that's what we're arguing when it comes to these laws, Ellen, is that basically LGBTQ activists are pushing for this definition, again, unlike any other definition in the world or medical definitions, what they're actually doing is saying, if you ever have any kind of same-sex attractions, you must act on them. You must behave a certain kind of way. You must label yourself a certain kind of way. Well, well again, attractions may not be your choice, but labels are. And so when when Calgary came out with a conversion therapy ban that's just as bad as the federal bill, except it's not criminal, so I guess it's not that bad, but it does ban advertising, which means uh, this kind of presentation that I'm giving you, if I'm promoting counseling for someone like I went through, and if I, if I gave out a phone number for a counselor for, for that, that I went to, that would now be illegal. Uh, both criminally, but I could also be fined thousands of dollars in Alberta under Calgary's bylaw. That's why that's the first time I've ever talked about this uh, counseling session I've had publicly. It was several counseling sessions, in fact, that I've gone through uh, throughout my life. Um, I, when I moved to Calgary, one of the first things I did was see a Christian counselor for this as well. And no one ever knew, and I didn't think I'd ever be talking about this publicly with anybody. But that's the whole point. No one should know. That's no one's right to know that. But now the government is saying that they have a right to tell me who I can or cannot see to get counseling. Yeah, one of the things that you pointed out so brilliantly when you were before the parliamentary committee is that this law actually discriminates against uh, against gay people mm-hmm. because they're the ones who are not allowed to get help even if they want to. Right. Well, heterosexual people can still get counseling of whenever they want to reduce their unwanted sexual behavior, and no one would question that they're trying to change their orientation. But LGBTQ people could not get the exact same help for the exact same conditions, like pornography or sex addiction. That's actually, uh, I think, a prima facie um, uh, evidence of of discrimination. This is actually a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah, and as as you know, like one of the things that's developed in our society in this under the banner of freedom is to allow people to to do what they want sexually mm-hmm. and now we've got a bill that's saying that if somebody wants to change their behavior uh for whatever reason mm-hmm. whatever reason that they they really can't go about or make it very very difficult for them to do that um and there, there's so much more that we could be talking about more about your own story more about this issue it'd be great to have you back sometime talk more specifically about the conversion therapy ban as you said we're probably going into an election it, maybe it'll be an election issue as you said certainly come up again um and I, people don't realize that behind a lot of these things is is the tendency of uh, ruling authorities to to take away people's freedoms in the name of freedom. And I think that's something very worthwhile to explore and then to see how, as people who are seeking to think biblically, should respond to something like that. Um, If anybody wants to get in touch with you, get to know what you're doing uh, more, how should they do that? 
Sure. So again, I'm on furlough, but uh, you can go to our apologetics ministry, faithbeyondbelief.ca. But if you want to learn more about what we're doing on the conversion therapy file, visit us at free2care.ca. That's T-O-F-R-E-E-T-O-C-A-R-E dot C-A. So uh, visit us there, especially if you're in Canada. We need your help. Uh, we're expecting the election anytime. And then these bills would be, this bill will be reintroduced in the fall and this will become law. Uh, by the end of the year. So it's critical we stand up and speak now. Very good. Uh, I will be putting the links to both those websites in the description below. Jojo Ruba, thank you so much for doing this with me today. Glad to be here, Alan. Thanks so much. Well, as uh, Jojo said, you can get to know what he's doing better and, and, uh, find out more from those two websites free to uh, free to care.ca and beyond belief.ca um, and as well if you want to contact me if you have any questions or comments you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org feel free to put any of your comments as well in uh, in the comment section below and so until next time this is alan gilman for thinking biblically mm-hmm.